0: This week's podcast is brought to you by the State of Online STEM Education in the U.S., an upcoming national survey from the Online Learning Consortium and the Every Learner Everywhere Network. The survey will explore the online STEM landscape through the lenses of faculty, institutional leadership, researchers, and policymakers. Please sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast. We are not live from Texas. Um, We were supposed to be taping this episode in front of an audience uh, at the South by Southwest EDU conference. But as you've probably heard, um, that event was canceled at the last minute. Um, City leaders forced it to shut down over concerns about the spreading coronavirus. On a personal note, I'm bummed um, because this was going to be a chance for us to meet our listeners in person. We know there are more and more of you out there. But looking at stats is, uh, let's face it, not the same as getting together, and we were looking forward to meeting you. Oh, and I almost forgot to say, this is Jeff Young. I am an editor at Ed Surge and the co-host of this podcast. So we are actually in the process of checking out some other opportunities to do some live events for the podcast. So stay tuned for that. But, you know, just because South By was called off, it doesn't seem like we had to stop this planned episode. So we contacted the guests we had lined up and, and asked if they would do this remotely. Instead of on stage, and it turns out um, one of our guests, Barbara Fister, was already in Texas, giving a keynote at another conference um, that actually didn't get canceled, the Electronic Resources and Libraries Conference. So before we get to our episode today, I just had to ask Barbara Fister what it feels like to be in Austin at this this other conference that's
1: going on. I was surprised that it doesn't feel any different than than I've ever felt. Um, you know, people aren't walking around with masks or you know trying to avoid each other particularly we're we're bumping elbows at this conference instead of shaking hands. So, you know, people are are trying different things, but, um, you know, things seem to just keep going as they were, and it doesn't seem that different. It's really kind of a weird disjunction between what I'm reading in the news and what I'm seeing on the ground.
0: Fister was game to join us for the episode today from her hotel room. Um, appreciate that. And I'm really glad this is still happening because it it's a really hot topic. Um, we're looking at how algorithms are shaping our lives, and and increasingly how algorithms are coming to educational institutions, raising tough ethical and privacy issues. Luckily, our other planned guests were up for this too. So we beam them in. One's a privacy advocate, and the other is a current student at UT Austin. So stay tuned, because we get to the results of a new survey about algorithmic literacy among college students, and we look at how that differs from how professors and instructors see algorithms. And we talk about a debate about whether facial recognition tech should be allowed on campuses and some surprising ways that students are actually pushing back against that idea we even look at how some students are turning to makeup as a way to confuse and disrupt facial recognition algorithms we call this one tales from the algorithmic front lines. here we go uh, let me first introduce all three of our panelists um, but we're going to be talking to them each kind of one at a time first and then bring them all together for a discussion First, first, we have Barbara Pfister, a longtime academic librarian who is serving, among other things, as a scholar in residence at Project Information Literacy, where she just worked on a report called Information Literacy in the Age of Algorithms. We'll be talking about that. Thanks so much for joining us, Barbara.
1: Good to be here.
0: Next, we also have Brian Short, a program director at British Columbia's Freedom of Information and Privacy Association in Canada. Um, and when he was a student a few years ago um, at the University of British Columbia, he was he sort of became a, a bit of an activist around privacy uh, issues and, and and thinking about algorithms. Thanks so much for being here, Brian.
2: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: And and finally, um, last but not least, we are joined by a student um, at the University of Texas at Austin, Sarah Ogumuiwa. Uh, thanks, Sarah.
3: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: Sarah's double majoring in, in women and gender studies um, and philosophy at the UT Austin as I said and her she has a focus um, a research focus looking at um, the intersections of surveillance beauty and desire um and and I think I'm really been looking forward to this discussion so I'm glad we're gonna I'm glad we're able to have it even though we can't um have this in front of an audience um Barbara I I wanted to start with this report you've recently um, completed researching, which is uh, you know, in collaboration with your colleagues. I understand you got to sit down with professors and students um, and talk about algorithms and how they're impacting our lives. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the the methods and, and what were some takeaways there.
1: Yeah. so Project Information Literacy is a, a nonprofit research independent research organization headed by Allison Head. And for the past 10 years, she's been leading research into the students' lived experience of information and how they find it, how they evaluate it. And so um, we thought it was a good time to take this step into this sort of algorithmic waters with this study. And what we did was um, uh, chose out of several applicants, we chose eight institutions that are representative of this student demographics, um, uh, different types of institutions, community colleges up through um, R1 institutions. And, uh, and then we also had it sort of geographically varied. So we had uh, some of these schools around both coasts and then some in the middle in red states and blue states. So we were trying for kind of an interesting cross-section. Um, and what we did was do two focus groups at each institution. Um, so total we talked to 103 students not a huge study, but it's at least a, a starting place to start exploring these questions. And then we interviewed 37 faculty at this bigger institutions as well. Um, so uh, yeah so we, we did that we processed the transcripts of what we did and uh, looked for patterns and did some coding and came up with some takeaways from what we heard.
0: Yeah, I guess I, there's there's probably much then with the different. Groups you talk to, I guess I'm wondering first maybe if we could start with students. Um, What what were some of their awareness levels, maybe if you will, about the role algorithms play as they um, kind of navigate the world of information these days?
1: It was quite high. Um, Really, all of them seemed to be very aware of what was going on, and I think it's because advertising has tipped the hands of these. Um, tech companies you can see ads which they call creepy following them around the internet across devices across platforms and so that's how they i think first kind of became aware of it and kind of disturbed by it but um then they um also i, I mean they just seem to be pretty highly aware and our other interest was in figuring out if they were concerned about it um, and that was interesting too because on the one hand they had these two conflicting emotions one was um they were really indignant about the ways that their privacy was being violated and the ways that they were being typecast um, through this process of gathering data on them but they were also resigned to it they didn't think they had any choice and they didn't think they had any way of, of making these companies change the way they operate So um, that was interesting. As we had our conversations, we went through the same script with um, the students and the faculty. We began to raise questions about um, how algorithms are being deployed in society to make a bunch of different decisions about things like who gets social services, who gets jobs, who gets loans. And then they really got interested in kind of the, the ethical nuances of this. And in some cases, they were surprised to find things like uh, they might be using Canvas, for example, on their campus. They didn't realize that was that company was gathering data.
0: So Canvas, as as a lot of listeners would know, is this tool for the learning management system. Blackboard's the competitor, but they, that a lot of colleges have to sort of, um, for every class, this is where the kind of digital hub of things.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's recently been in negotiations for a sale. And apparently this data is extremely valuable, but the students didn't know they were providing it even the faculty didn't seem to know anything about it. So there's a lack of informed consent in there. But what was fascinating to me is that the more we talked about the social implications, the more students were, the indignation grew and the resignation in a sense retreated a bit because they felt like, well, something has to be done about this. And I I really want to do something about it. So that was, um, one of our takeaways is I think there's some space in between the indignation and the resignation where there could be a, a, some real interesting conversations about, so so we don't like it, what are we going to do about it? What are the mechanisms in society for doing something about it? And um, I, that left me hopeful that that resignation piece could be somewhat turned around and turned into something more of an activist approach to what are you people doing with my data? I don't want you to do those things. And I can actually um, have some effect on what these companies are doing if you know, we work together on some social solutions.
0: It's interesting. And you also said that, uh, I understand that the, the study also kind of got into a sense of, of whether students felt um, you know, trust as they went out and, and gathered information. What were you hearing around that?
1: Right, and that's um, that was one of our, our takeaways, was that students in this, most of the students who we talked to, I should say, were um, traditional age, 18 to 22, uh, about 80% of them. Um, so, um, just so that you realize where they're coming from, they tended to characterize their age group as a pivot generation, where they grew up with the internet, but not with necessarily social media influencing their lives every step of the way. So they were coming of age with social media uh, and with these algorithmic deployments of information coming at them um, through social media. And they felt they were especially well positioned to critically assess that. But they tended to be very skeptical and um, to think that actually um, the, their whole schooling had been kind of gearing them to not trust any information source. They would have to go out and do the research and assess everything they saw. Um, and they said, you know, it's different for our professors. They grew up at a different time. They have certain sources they always go to, but we don't, we, we we've, were raised and educated to believe don't trust anything which is a problem because trust is a wonderful shortcut. If you want to get good information, you really have to be able to trust experts, to trust scientists, to trust scholars, to trust people who can do the research in ways that you couldn't possibly do because you haven't had that background. Uh, so that I think is a, um, an interesting thing to think about for educators. How do you balance skepticism, which seems to come quite naturally to this, this group of students, um, and add to that, why? what would be characteristics of a trustworthy source of information? How can you tell which ones are, are, are trustworthy? Because these days, there's so much information coming at us. You can't stop and evaluate every single thing that you see that might have uh, impact on you. You need to have some, some quick ways to assess information, and trust can really help with that. Um, you know we don't go necessarily seeking information these days it seeks us and as it comes in these huge volumes um, we need to think about how to teach students to quickly you know nimbly evaluate some of these sources
0: well wow. I, I also wanted to and i'm going to bring in some of these um people that are closer to the student experience voices in a minute but I wanted to ask about the faculty you spoke with and how, how different in a nutshell were what their views were on these, some of these same issues.
1: That was really fascinating to me. Um, students were concerned and they were aware and they practiced certain kinds of privacy practices. They were learning from each other how to use VPNs and ad, ad blockers and a lot of things. Um, the faculty were absolutely horrified <laughs> by what's going on in the world of information Um, A lot of them really kind of let loose with, like, oh, this is a crisis. This is really bad. We need to do something about it. Um, But they didn't, they were thinking of it on this kind of a large social scale. You know, this is splintering us. This is making it hard to know what's true and what's not true. But they weren't relating that to their own work with students. Um, So, you know, when asked, so what do you do in your courses about this? You seem to be really concerned about it. Oh, well. Uh, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, we bring a librarian in to talk to the class, but uh, they weren't really thinking about whether how this kind of uh, understanding of information and, and and trust and all of that could be included in their courses. And I think it could be, but they just hadn't really thought about it that way. With mo- for for most for the most part, there there were a couple who really. Um, said, no, we talk about various aspects of it to kind of bring it into this disciplinary conversation. Um, but most of them really didn't have any idea how they could talk about it. And I don't think they felt necessarily qualified to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. And then they also were like, really, the, for them, it was this big social issues. For the students, it was a little bit more personal. I don't like this. I'm going to do something about it. And for the, the faculty, was like, I don't like this, somebody should do something about it.
0: (laughs) After the break, we turn to that issue of using facial recognition technology on campuses. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Every Learner Everywhere, in partnership with the Online Learning Consortium. They're running a survey of the online STEM landscape. I asked the surveys leader, Devin Kinsella, why this national survey is so important for the future of online STEM education.
4: And what we realized is that there's a real opportunity to kind of drill down a little bit more. So instead of generically about just online education and people's thoughts and, you know, beliefs and is it good, bad, you know, indifferent kind of thing, is saying, you know, we really don't understand the STEM education and the aspects of STEM education online. And so what this is, is kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a spin-off of that, if you will, to kind of better understand, because really, to my knowledge, no one knows. Um, You know, we have a lot of kind of ideas and a lot of thoughts and a lot of, you know, kind of experience and anecdotal type stuff. But you could certainly, you know, throw down the gauntlet and say, we know a lot about MBA programs online or or English degrees online or, you know, nursing degrees online. But we really don't know that much about STEM education and kind of all its forms.
0: You can sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. Now back to the episode. So Sarah, um, you are at the University of Texas at Austin as we speak and are exploring some of these issues. Um, as you know, from a a current student's perspective, I'm curious. Um, it it seems like one of the things that you've dug into is another issue we've been covering a lot at EdSurge, which is facial recognition software. Um, first off, like for those who haven't been, for those who haven't been following this issue maybe as much, what is it about facial recognition technology that is raising some concerns? Um,
3: I think some of the issues about facial, rec- um, facial recognition technology that's raising concerns is a lot of people aren't aware that their faces are being registered. Like a lot of people are not aware that this technology is being used on them. So um, lack of awareness, lack of transparency, I think is an issue. And then another issue with facial recognition technology is that the way it works is that it is based off an algorithm and it's based off what, um, an idea of what like the model human would be. So like, it's based off of like being gender, being White, male, um, so it's based off that model and not everybody falls into that. So the way facial facial recognition technology works is that sometimes it doesn't register everyone, which could be either good or a bad thing. So for example, um, like um, technology that's used in facial recognition is first you have to use like detection for facial recognition to work. So an example would be like maybe those automatic syncs that you would use. Like people that have darker skin may not be able to use it as easily because they're not as easily detected by such um, software. So like it raises issues of like, well, if these models are based off like an arbitrary idea of what a human being looks like, then how is everyone going to be registered under the same system? And is that a good thing or a bad thing?
0: basically the assumptions built into the model, um, are ones that, um, you know, these are some of the, some issues we're, we're debating as a society right now about how to, um, uh, some of these identity issues and, 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 but also like you, you realize that when it comes to these algorithms, there's gotta be a setting that's wired in here. It, do you feel like people aren't aware of those kinds of 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 programming choices that are being made as as these technologies, something like facial recognition is kind of rolling out pretty quickly
3: I think the way facial technolo- facial recognition technology is being rolled out it's being um rolled out in a way where people aren't but like it's being seen as something that's neutral so And technology is never neutral because like technology is modeled after human behavior and human behavior is not something that's neutral. So I guess an example of like um, facial recognition technology would be like using your iPhone to using your face to unlock your iPhone. Like a lot of people aren't really like suspicious of that. They just see it as like, oh, this is a really cool new technology. I don't even need to use my hands. I can just use my face to unlock my phone. But I feel like people should be wary of these things because it's like, Is there information being collected through these devices, through these algorithms? Um, And if information is being collected, is there transparency about the information being collected and what it's going to be used for? And also it raises issues of consent as well.
0: And are you, I think you're part of it, or at least uh, kind of signed on in some way to this nationwide effort to ban facial recognition on campus or stop facial recognition from coming to campuses, right?
3: Yeah, I'm very wary about facial recognition technology um, being on college campuses, because a lot of college campuses already use um, security cameras. I know UT has like a lot, like probably thousands of security cameras around campus. And I was doing a little research on this. And we're not allowed, like the footage f- from the security cameras is not open access. Like you can't request it through FOIA. Like it's exempt from that. So, and a lot of students don't know that they're being recorded. There's no, we can't access any information about like where these cameras might be, who has access to them, like who's watching us. We only, we can only take the word of like the campus police or campus um, IT. Um, we can only like, trust what they tell us. We don't really have anything to like register this information against and I feel like since there's such a lack of transparency when it comes to um, already like security cameras on campus it has me worried about like if they were to bring facial recognition technology like what information do we have access to and also like many students didn't consent to these things or didn't knowingly consent to these things so I feel like it's a concern. And I feel like more people should be talking about it.
0: It sounds like there are other ways that people are thinking through as a way to kind of subvert or, or get people to think about facial recognition technology. And one involves um, even makeup. Could you talk a little bit about
3: this? Yeah. So the technique is called CV Dazzle and it was started by Adam Harvey, um, who is an artist. He also created something called an anti-drone burqa, where he weaved metal within fabric and like made a burqa, and it's supposed to help you go undetected to drone technology. So he also was thinking about ways to go undetected to facial recognition technology. And it turns out that like the way facial, recogni- facial recognition technology works is that it registers different parts of the face. So maybe underneath your eyes, your forehead, your nose, chin. And basically he found a way to go undetected towards that technology by covering up those places and kind of like aestheticizing it. So the technique is called CV Dazzle. It's adopted after um, this technique used in World War II where they would paint like black and white stripes on the sides of warships and that would help the ships go undetected so he adopted that and made it into a makeup technique and it i think it's really cool and i think it's a really good way of exploring face exploring anti facial recognition technology in like an aesthetic way but the thing is, it kind of has like a hypervisibility and unhypervisibility dyad in the sense that you would go undetected by facial recognition technology, but you would look really crazy, like going out wearing that kind of makeup. So what I've been working on with my friend and thinking about is like, how can we make ways how can we use makeup, beauty, uh, aesthetics to resist? facial recognition technology, but in a way that doesn't make you stand out in real life as well.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah. So this, we'll put up um, links to the CV Dazzle um, and some images on our on our show page. Um, this is one of those moments where it's like a podcast has its limits, we're just audio, but some of these images, would you? how would you describe maybe for those who haven't seen them yet, what this what this kind of looks like um and i understand you're you're trying to come up with even even a different one but the how would you describe what is somebody with this cv dazzle it looks like
3: so i guess an example would be like maybe painting triangles underneath your face like how normally people who wear makeup they would put concealer but it would match their skin tone so you would probably use a different color and then maybe put something on your forehead or you can even use hair, like maybe put bangs to cover up the forehead. Um, You would put a different color on the bridge of your nose and then that would make it difficult for facial recognition technology to register your face.
0: And so in a world where like in so many dystopian Hollywood movies, there's, you know, that it feels like sometimes things are, are headed toward in real life these days. The idea would be, you could, you would be stopping these technologies from matching you to a database and knowing who you are as you walked around now. Um, and then the idea being um, for, but for you that raises, there's, there's obviously that concern of calling undue attention for the non, you know, non-camera world. And so is, the, do you, you know, you're, you, would, is part of your, I'm curious, is part of it a technique of makeup and also is some of it actually convincing maybe others to wear this kind of different type of, of look to sort of get everybody involved in saying we don't want this?
3: Yeah, I think what I'm trying to do is is mostly like get people to start thinking about these things. Like I'm not really trying to like create a product to sell or really make something that everybody would be using. It's more of a get people to think about the ways in which technology is being used nowadays, get people to think about um, surveillance in general and exploring it through not just through academia, but also through the arts as well.
0: Hmm. And I guess I'm curious, do you feel like those who you, um, you know, when you talk to students, you're at a, one of the largest campuses in the, in the country, do you feel like people have kind of an awareness of some of these the way in which algorithms are are out there in so many facets of our lives? Or, or where do you think the people you talk to are on this issue?
3: I think a lot of people are becoming more aware of these things through social media. And I think, because these things are not really being talked about as much in the classroom, unless you're taking like those kinds of classes. Um, the way it's being presented in school is more of a like, oh, technology is either neutral or like, technology is good because this is innovation and this is going to move us forward in the future. But like the ethics of it are not being questioned as much in the classroom. So I think social media is the place where I've seen um, students contend with these things more.
0: And I want to move to Brian Short, who we've actually had on the podcast before. And I encourage you to go back and check out that episode from last year. Um, The title of that one was inside a student's hunt for his own learning data. Um, Brian, Actually, maybe we will, you know, you're now at a, a BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association, so you're still very much looking into these issues. But let's go back to when you were a student um, at the University of British Columbia, which was in 2016. It's been a few years now, but I think some of these issues sound just in line with what Barbara Fister was just describing. Um, could you just just very quickly lead us through what got your um, sparked your interest in kind of looking at how your own institution at your own college was do, dealing with student data.
2: Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> I was uh, an undergraduate student at at the University of British Columbia. We call it UBC. Um, and I was working for this uh, a, a digital uh, outfit out of the Center for Learning Teaching and Technology called the Digital Tattoo Project. And I was encouraged to look into what kind of information was being collected through our learning management system at UBC which was uh, Blackboard Connect at that point in time. So to do that, I kind of started digging into the terms of service, the privacy policy, trying to figure out what was being collected. And I kind of ran into a wall there and I said, I I, I don't know. It's not clear to me what information is being collected, how it might be being used. Um, But there was one little provision in there that said, if you are interested in learning about this kind of stuff, you can, under uh, BC's Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, file a request for your data, your personal information, and we will be compelled by law to, to give it to you. So I underwent that very formal legal process to try to get my, my data. And it ended up being a, a little bit of a fight. It didn't come easily. Took uh, several months. And by the time I got it, I realized, like, wow, they're collecting pretty much everything that they can. Um, and and they had they, they said, you know, there was some rhetoric around why it was being collected, how they were going to use it. And when I began to sort of dig into that that rhetoric and say, is this really how it's being used? Could it be being used in different ways? I, I was pretty concerned by what I found.
0: So, I mean, was one of your feelings that you, meant, you mentioned, you felt like they were grabbing everything that they could as far as how you behaved and, you know, with this learning management system being kind of a required... Um, thing to use for students to get to the syllabi and maybe be in course discussions and download, you know, and maybe even turn in your homework. Um, did you feel like it was collecting and, and storing more than it than they needed to as an institution? Was that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose like, yeah. and And the way that they justified this was to say, you know, if with all of this information being collected, we can now identify students who are struggling within a course and offer them interventions and try to help them and, and allow them to succeed in the course. And I thought, okay, if that's happening, fantastic. Let's, I mean, that, that's a totally worthwhile thing to do. But when I asked for any kind of evidence, can you, can you give me an example of a student where this has worked? Uh, the administration sort of said, well, actually, it doesn't work that well. We've never actually been able to do that before, but that's kind of the idea. And so as I began to consider and look at all of the information that was being collected, I said, well, you could be harming students in this way or in that way.
0: Can you give an example? Actually, that's interesting. What, what, yeah, what did you see as a potential harm here?
2: So, uh, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what the, the data was. So it's, it's, you know, whenever you log into this portal, it, uh, timestamps recorded and how long you spend on each page and where you click and where you go, all of this is logged into uh, what was called a performance dashboard, which created a very easy way for instructors to sort of rank and, and look at how engaged a student was in the portal. And this in turn would inform participation grades, especially in online courses. Um, So a student who logged in, spent a bunch of time in the system, uh, maybe wasn't actually doing anything necessarily productive, they could have just had the window open in the background, would appear to be more engaged than a student who would say just log in once at the beginning of the year, download everything, and then log in periodically just to submit assignments, submit a comment. so that, in, in that sense, um, a, a student could be biased depending on how they were using the system.
0: Bringing it up to now, um, that was a couple years ago, but, uh, Barbara alluded to the fact that now we're seeing that one of the major course management systems that are used by many colleges, um, are, you know, basically, you know, is the, the company called Instructure, which makes Canvas, which is the, the, the learning management system, they are, um, you know, up for sale um, with a sale pending to a private equity firm, and I, I guess the that's a a deal that's valued at, at two billion dollars. If I understand it correctly, we've been reporting on that at EdSurge. Um, and what do you think this says about the you know the the issues you were were trying to raise? I think it. I
2: think it's kind of almost a worst case scenario situation where you've gone and you have an agreement as a public institution with one company, and you've got a set of you've got a contract um, with them for the way that they're going to treat and use this information. And then when this company, I mean, nobody really considered the entire company itself might be bought for the purpose of harvesting and using this data for perhaps something else entirely. And what does that mean for privacy in different jurisdictions? I mean, this is a company that operates internationally. I'm in, I'm in Canada and our, our, the university, my alma mater UBC is now using canvas. Um, so what does it mean for for compliance with privacy laws in Canada? Compliance with privacy laws in the U.S. I don't know if they operate in Europe, but if they are, if they are, it probably a lot of questions around how it operates within the GDPR. Um, yeah, for me, it's it's it, I think it's a new realm of thought that administrators need to be thinking about when they're um, procuring uh, software for their institutions.
0: Now, just to you know, just to be um, the the just to pass along the, we've talked to the company for this. And they say that this new company buying it plans to just operate the same old way. But the, I I definitely see your point, which is that when it's sold, you just, there's, there's a whole new owner. And so the questions are all there. Um, And, you know, there's plenty of people. In fact, I know there's a petition by faculty to, um, you know, to really get the company to swear that it will operate, you know, the same way when it comes to its data um, so the uncertainty there, it really does, it, like you said, it seems to have brought to the fore these issues that, that, um, you were raising, uh, so many years ago. And now it's, it's kind of become a little bit more of a discussion. If I will, I'm going to sort of open it now and, and have a discussion with all, all of us. Um, and I, I wonder Barbara coming back to you, what, what you think of these specific examples of, um, of a student and a recent, um, graduate talking about, Does this match pretty well to what you were hearing in your interviews?
1: Well, uh, I'd say Brian and Sarah are way ahead of the pack when it comes to understanding and thinking through the implications. I mean, I think it's fantastic what you're doing, um, you know, going through the process of doing a FOIA and getting the actual details and, you know, thinking about how the arts could actually help people both understand and then also influence um, what's going on in the world. Um, so it, it tracks in that, I think, you often hear people as old as I am say, oh, young people don't care about privacy. Well, they do. They do tremendously. They always have. Um, and I, I think the question is, can we get past that knowing that this is happening and it really bugs me that it's happening to, and, and past even, um, here's what I can personally do to protect myself to um, something that's a wider kind of social action stance um, so that people are actually um, involved in in pushing for change, Um, which you know, in their spare time, students are really busy and they don't really have time to do all of this. And it's not on them to do it anyway, but I think part of what paralyzes people is they don't really know the details of what's going on and they don't know how to attack it. They don't know how to get at the people who hold the power and say, this, we're not okay with this anymore. Um, so what, you know, like Brian was doing with, um, you know, actually getting the details, well, you know, somebody in the administration should have done that at some point. Somebody should have been aware of this. And yet I think we're all, um, it's very easy to be kind of snowed by these companies um, because what are you going to do? If you're going to use it, you kind of have, no, you know, the choice is to use it or not to use it. And I think we have to open up that binary and put in something other than just "I'll use it or I won't use it."
0: And Brian, um, I guess I'm I'm also curious about you know this. Um, d- could you be convinced, if you will, that maybe there could be this use that that you know they originally told you your data was for um, to to sort of help students help you know catch and intervene when a student is having trouble. Is, it, is there a way in which you kind of could, could have been convinced that that's what was going on? Or do you feel like there is going to be this um, um, skepticism that's going to be really hard to convince you that that's, that's what's really going on? I don't know if you, you know what I mean. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I, I absolutely could be convinced of that. And something that both Barbara and Sarah talked about here is the notion of consent, which I think is really, really important. When I tried to find out what was happening, I couldn't. It just wasn't transparent. Uh, it took this sort of uh, bureaucratic, legalistic process to get access to the information I needed to make a decision about whether or not I thought what was happening on the system was was fair. So I think if if to, to do that better, to be more upfront and say, you know, we are collecting information. This is the information we're collecting. We're going to use it in this way for this purpose. And if you don't agree with that, maybe you can opt out to this part of it or this part of it. Sort of tailoring options, so you can. Um, and I heard Barbara say in, achieve informed consent here. Here in Canada, we have a notion um, that was developed by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner called meaningful consent, um, which which goes a step beyond just simply, you know, do you agree to this? Yes or no. It's black or white. there's take it or leave it kind of thing. Um, so if we get closer to that, absolutely. I would I would totally say, yeah, you can collect my information. You want to use it for research purposes great. Oh, you want to use it for marketing? Well, maybe I don't, I don't like that so much. I'm going to opt out of of that one. So having more options, more choices to achieve um, a more meaningful notion of consent would, would go a long way for me.
0: Sarah, what about you? I mean, is there a way in which that you, you kind of think in a way that these things could like facial recognition could maybe have a place, um, in a in a, to help the people that are using them? Um, and that that's what needs to be shaped or is it more of a, a yeah or and and how do we get there
3: um I feel like the root of the issue is not necessarily just the technology itself but a wider societal issue so I'm wary about like facial recognition technology on campus but mostly because of the ways historically that older technologies have been used to, like, surveil students and, like, maybe suppress student protests, suppress student voices and concerns. So, which I feel like the issue has to start from the root of the problem as opposed to, like, oh, is this, is using this technology a good or bad thing? And I think once we, like, address those things, we can now talk about, like, the ways in which these technologies are being used and if it's oh, cool. ethical or not
0: interesting so that it's not a um, you're not going to get into the feature set of a software at this point you're more like where are the um trust and setting up frameworks of how of the the kind of goals of the thing rather than before you get to what's being done to get those goals yeah exactly back to the title of this, just to kind of end on our, uh, this discussion on, you know, the algorithmic front lines was kind of something that as I, as we were having these discussions for our reporting, it just kind of struck me that there was this kind of almost battle kind of shaping up, um, about a debate, um, the very kind that Sarah and Brian and are and are kind of advocating for and that Barbara is kind of expo- uh, enlightening with this survey of asking people questions. But I guess, I guess how much does it, what does it feel like? Maybe start with, with Sarah, um, you know, does it kind of feel like a, a battle or a front line, or, or, or is that like some terrible journalistic thing I'm, I'm doing here? <laughs> I don't know. What, what does it kind of feel like, if you will?
3: It does kind of feel like a battle because, It shouldn't be this difficult to request information on yourself. And I feel like the lack of transparency, the lack of consent are like things that we are actively battling. And I think it's a worthwhile fight, if fight is the correct word to use, because if people are collecting information on you and you don't know what it's being used for, you don't know the ways that you're being watched, I feel like these are things that you are entitled to know.
0: Yeah, Brian. What do you? What would you say to that?
2: Yeah, it's, it certainly has felt like a, a battle at, at points. Like it, within my own, yeah, you know, in my own set of circumstances, I met with administrators and I met with um, representatives of student government, and I really tried to advocate for change in the system. And there were points where you know heads, people with very different ideology, ideological beliefs, sort of, you know, told me, well, "I'm doing this for your own good." You shouldn't be challenging the system. You know, Your perspective essentially is unimportant to, to the way administration's collecting information. And, and in those instances, it did feel like a battle. But I think everybody is coming at it from the right side. Administrators do want to help students. Students um, need to have a voice from student government that perhaps isn't there advocating for, for privacy concerns. Um, and it's going to take a conversation and maybe some new words and some new understanding about the issues at hand um to to bring some change in the space
0: and barbara any closing closing thoughts on that same question of i mean is it kind of depend on who you ask whether that feels like a a front line of a battlefield or something else
1: in a sense i think um, what we're seeing is um, it's kind of two parts one is that this stuff is happening throughout society the capacity to surveil people and to combine information and to to watch people has grown tremendously just because the technology and the computational power is there um, and it's there be, and people are gathering data before they even know what they're going to use it for they're just gathering it because they can um, which is risky because you never know where there's going to end up i think their other piece of this is that we're also looking at a higher education at a moment when uh, the human relationships are kind of being stripped out of it. Um, the faculty are hired by the course rather than to, you know, be regular faculty members at a at an institution for years and years. Um, the students are seen as a revenue stream instead of as individuals with, with uh, value of their own. And the kind of intermediation between the, the teacher and the student is becoming, um, Technologized by these companies that are trying to intervene in various ways that could be helpful, but you know it probably would be a lot more helpful if we had enough resources so that teachers could get to know their students and students um, wouldn't have to be surveilled to be um, for people to figure out you know what this student is really struggling. I wonder what's going on. Let's talk to her about it. Um, so I think I think it's two parts. It's partly technology moving faster than the speed of ethics as I just said this morning in another presentation Um, and just sort of like well we could do this let's get a company to start doing this and making money and then we'll figure out what we're actually doing and then the kind of um, stuff happening in higher education that this is only one piece of that is um, uh, making it possible for these technology companies to step into a breach and say hey we got this we can take care of this for you even if you don't have regularly appointed faculty members and even if the students really are a revenue stream for us. um, And um, we can somehow make justifications for this because maybe it'll be helpful. It'd be a lot more helpful if we had human relationships in my, to my mind.
0: Well, well, I do feel like we'll be continuing on these issues and really want to thank everybody again for, for joining us to share your perspectives. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. No problem.
0: This has been the EdSurge Podcast. We bring you conversations like this one each week, every Tuesday, about the latest issues facing education. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we hope you'll subscribe. If you like the show, please do tell a friend on social media or in person at whatever event you are at or not at. Special thanks to our guests today, who kind of were agreeable to doing this remotely, and to the folks at South by Southwest EDU. You can check out our ongoing coverage at edsurge.com for information about how colleges and K-12 schools are responding to the coronavirus, which, as you know, is turning out to be pretty disruptive, not just for conferences. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Thanks for listening, and we'll leave you with how Sarah, that student from UT Austin who was our guest today, describes life on campus these days in Austin.
3: Um, They have been sending us a lot of updates about um, the coronavirus and giving us tips on how to like have proper hygiene and whatnot but no classes have been canceled
1: so far and everything's just been carrying on as normal